Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long-form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday, and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good morning, boys. Good morning, Patrick. How are you today, sir? I'm good. How were your birthday celebrations? (laughs) Oh, I'm still drunk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was your 40th, right? It was your 40th. Yeah, they were good. Yeah. Yeah. They were sort of, um, they were a bit unsurprised. The staff sort of um, popped the mommy take to a large extent. So, you know, um, yeah, they were, it was big, you know. Yeah. Um, they were done for a couple of days, but it wasn't me who orchestrated any part of it. You know? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So, Patrick, you've had a very long, very successful, um, super interesting, almost to the point where it's unbelievably interesting um, with some of the experiences you've had, the things that you've done. So, do you want to just give us a little bit of a background about um, who you are, how you got started? Um, in five words or less. Yeah, in a nutshell, <laughs> um, I, I went to college first in Queen's Belfast and I had done quite well from the point of view that I'd won the British Amateur Young Scientist of the Year. And then I won the Aer Lingus, which is a big competition in the south of Ireland, when I was about 14 or 15. And so that sort of directed me more into biochemistry. But when I was in biochemistry, I said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in a lab. And I um, took time off. Northern Ireland was kicking off then, and particularly around the college sort of campus area, there was a lot of trouble. So I took some time off in New York. And believe it or not, I met an old Jewish guy, you know, sort of um, down near the village one day. And he almost like told my fortune. He, <laughs> I befriended him. We met for a couple of coffees. And he says, you're a healer. You should become a doctor. And you know the way that when you're young, you're sort of 18, 19. And, you know, you don't know what these guys are talking about and um, he sort of figured me out long before we discussed my future career and he says you're a healer you should go and do medicine so I applied to um, London to Edinburgh to Queens and I hadn't really thought of Dublin but um, my mum thought it was better just because Northern Ireland was really in a bad way then you had all those um, tit-for-tat murders particularly where the Queen's University is right in the middle of it. It's that interface between middle-class Malone Road and working-class, I suppose, Lisbon Road and the Shankill Road. And um, they, um, I went to Dublin and um, pursued a career in medicine. And I suppose because it was coming into it a bit later, I wanted to do plastic surgery, but then decided to a large extent you know yourself, the Calman sort of, you know, protocols are coming in. You'd probably be stuck in the one hospital for four to six years. And I suppose I wanted to travel also. And as a consequence of that, 
I was very lucky that um, I got all my traveling out of my way. I worked in New Zealand. I worked in South Africa during the, I suppose, change over there. I worked in Gibraltar. I worked in California. I worked in Miami. I always wanted to do things like the Flying Doctors. So um, I went to Australia and did that and then took over a cancer sort of um, center with some dermatologists in Queensland. I had worked in the Mayo Clinic um, as a student and I'd written a paper on malignant melanomas, which was a sentinel paper to a large extent because it was one of the first predictive papers back in 19, I suppose, 87. The malignant melanoma was really kicking off. And we weren't advocating, as like a lot of people were, that it had to got to do directly with sun or it had to do with travel, as everybody was, because some of the predictive factors weren't coherent. You know, for instance, people who were wearing sunscreen at some of the highest instances and should have the lowest instances. So was sunscreen causing this? Was sunscreen used in areas of high sun? And I knew, for instance, that the highest rate in the world at the time had moved from Phoenix, Arizona to Queensland. And when I got an opportunity to work in Toowoomba um, with a lot of these patients, um, I, I took it readily. And we were associated with um, the, uh, Princess Alexandra uh, Hospital in Brisbane where they were doing the malignant melanoma vaccine trials. And it worked on dogs that didn't work on humans. And so it was an interesting time for me. And then I suppose my mum got ill. That was about 98. And when I came back, three or four things happened to come together. Um, certainly the use of Botox um, came in in 96. And not only cosmetically, we were using it for everything. I mean, I was using it for migraine back in, in the certainly um, 98, 99. I was using it for, oh, you couldn't believe it. Tinnitus, it still works for tinnitus. I still use it. We're trying it in snoring by, you know, sort of injecting the uvula. <laughs> so everything was happening then. I mean, I was using it for sweating in 99. And when I came back to the FACE conference in 2001, I had many, many cases behind me at that stage, over 100. And when Professor Nicolau gave a, a sort of a, um, lecture on that in London, I said, we don't have to wrap people up in snap wrap or do the iodine test. Just, you know, sort of shave them, do the follicular area. And so on um, reflection, it's amazing. So I suppose as a consequence of German fillers coming out also in 96 in Sweden, Botas coming out before 96, but in that sort of period, and Patrick Bitterwood, IPL in 98 in um, Enrico, California, the three things came together and we decided, uh, I suppose, to go down a total new route, which became aesthetic medicine. Yeah. And not just, you know, sort of um, Des Fernandez in Cape Town, Patrick um, in, uh, and John in London, and, and some friends of mine, Peter in um, Eindhoven. Yeah. Can I um, ask, so you had this very varied, um, you know, early medical career, you did, um, you know, lots of stints in lots of countries. So, how did you or why did you get involved in aesthetic medicine? Was it just the, you know, your, your work in the skin wards in, in Toowoomba, et cetera? Or? Oh, well, forget, um, Jake, that aesthetic medicine didn't exist then. Yeah. It was something we created, you know? So I suppose the background to it more was that I was interested in plastic surgery. 
I wasn't going to end up doing that as a career path. And this was a new opportunity that presented itself that suddenly people who were of all backgrounds suddenly could have access to changing their features. Yeah. The technologies only started then as well. So even though now we've radio frequency, we did the first trials uh, in 2004. Yeah. For, for radio frequency. And I remember doing, I was in New York and doing a BBC World Service thing for the first time. And, you know, all the other frequencies, you can see the way they run across the electromagnetic spectrum. And um, from, I suppose, uh, and, and beyond, obviously, into things like ultrasound as well. Uh, and each one of the frequencies have been taken or the wavelengths, you know, sort of to use uh, technologies. That only started in this century, really. Yeah. And uh, there's no doubt about it, um, things became cheaper, things became safer. And there was a big fear of, I suppose, cosmetic surgery. And um, a lot of people not only were afraid of it, but because it was so expensive, thought that only Hollywood celebrities did it. So particularly the use of dermal fillers changed everything. Yeah. And they changed everything for many reasons. The first thing is that I was faced with many problems as soon as we started. The first was HIV. And I had an empathy for HIV because I got stabbed in a Dublin hospital myself in 1987 by a heroin addict, unfortunately, who was very young and who accidentally knocked everything off the bed before we evacuated the nurse. Right. And it stuck in my leg. And he told me, like, he, I, I, he was um, cyanotic from a severe asthma attack and going under. And we were going to have the tube and I needed a blood gas and he thought I was looking for a vein. So he says there's one here. And it was his last one that he used for mainlining most probably. And he just knocked everything off the bed and stuck in my leg. So without doing anything, he turned around and says, I'm HIV positive. I went straight to theatre. And when I went to theatre, I told my friend, look, consider this like a malignant melanoma. I just cut a big lump out of my leg. And I don't mind saying it now, but the sister came in. My friend was doing a hip operation. She says, what are you doing? She screamed at me because she'd heard, I suppose, the story downstairs. I said, you're not double gloved. She shut down theatre. She asked me to leave the hospital. She opened up another theatre for the thing. I was asked to sort of leave, no counselling. And then when I went to the Royal College of Surgeons, and I've seen a certain Professor Moorhouse, I don't mind mentioning the name, because she turned around and told me there's 41 needle sticks in the world and four have died, including a nurse in London last week. Wow. She says, I'm keeping that on this. And she says, lucky you're not IVIM or you'll die also. And I said, of course I'm IVIM. You know, I mean, I, the blood comes straight from his vein into my muscle. And she turned around and says, well, you probably die then. Jeez. You know? How big was this lump that you had to chop out of your leg? I got I got um, a friend of mine, a surgeon, who was doing orthopedics, to cut a big lump out of my leg. It's still the scar, yeah. How big was it? Like, show us with your fingers. Or maybe tell us, give us a reference. Size yeah. of an iPhone. <laughs> that length? Okay, like a big um, marker pen sort of size. Wow. Right. Uh, yeah, I suppose it was three or four centimetres long and, you know, yeah. maybe long. Wow. Mm. And how long were you sort of in limbo about whether you contracted oh, yeah, the virus. Three years. Wow, that yeah. must have been nerve-wracking. So, so, yeah. So I went to New Zealand and obviously I had to tell everybody um, because I had to get the blood test done. And 
I don't know, Jake, you maybe you're too young to remember the ads in Britain at the time. I mean, they yeah. were horrendous. I mean, COVID's kids walk in the park compared to HIV. Remember they used to come on with this guy, um, the Grim Reaper with the big, you know, sort of sword or his sickle you know, thing over his shoulder. Uh, is, yeah, is, uh, is it a side or a sickle? I can't <laughs> sickle, remember. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I say, you're all going to die if you don't do this. And everybody thought you'd get HIV from kissing and, you know, sort of from eye contact. And, oh, my God. Retrovir only came out later, you know, but I mean, but anyway, I was fine. I never sort of converted, but it did bring me, I suppose, number one, to different parts of the world because I went to whoosh, Dunedin, New Zealand, next stop, Antarctica, Invercargill, of course, is in the middle. And then I also, I suppose, came back, Berlin Wall kicked off, and then I worked in Iraq for a period um, in the Ibn al-Bitar Hospital. And um, that was an interesting experience also. Now, Patrick, one of the reasons we asked you on is, like you said earlier, you're one of the pioneers of a lot of stuff, and you were sort of one of the doctors who just said, I'm going to have a go and I'll work things out. So I'm just curious to know, did you have any mentors or, or how did you learn to use toxins and, and then fillers and lasers. I mean, you're one of the first to do so many things and based in Ireland as well. I'm, I'm guessing the, you know, the, the demand for it was very low at that time anyway. I suppose the influences in my life have not been mentors per se. Mm. When I grew up, <clears throat> we had a garage at home and as a consequence, Everybody came with problems, tractors that couldn't fix, cars that couldn't fix. And we had this almost center that mechanics sent those problems that couldn't figure, you mm. know. And um, even when I was young, people came to me with stuff. You know, I mean, I remember a garage up the road sending us a Singer Gazelle that wouldn't break and they put on the slave cylinder upside down. So there was an airlock in it. And I mean, I figured that out, even though their mechanics had it on. So they sent us that from Enniskillen, 25 miles. So I was always in that situation. So, uh, and the second thing is, I had a background in molecular biology and um, and biochemistry, Mm. quite a a good honours degree. So I knew my science quite well. So among the first things was, um, I was shown in London uh, in the early part of the century, a person with ptosis and Botox, and nobody could correct it. Mm-hmm. And it had been a very messy case because the doctor involved sent the patient to a friend of his. He thought of his friend who told the patient that they had this for life. And the doctor was very distressed. And we um, came up originally with phenylephedrine. Mm. And we, we used that, and it worked fine. Yeah. I know we use... Um, iodipine at the moment, and I use that as well. The only thing is it, it gave you a pupil, but I sort of, I suppose, got into a situation where, you know, these things can be corrected. And then, believe it or not, um, simple things like brautosis, you know, that is so simple now, but at the time people couldn't figure out how you correct it. And when you consider antagonistic muscles pulling against each other, it was common sense to say, you know, I mean, we can the other one more, it'll go back up again. Yeah. And those were the early days and exciting days, you know. So originally when HIV started, and sorry, we could often limb regarding HIV, but um, because of a certain, I suppose, um, empathy with those patients, 
the HIV lipodystrophy syndrome, which you don't see now, was horrendous in those days. Mm. People would commit suicide because of it. They stayed in their house. They, they couldn't leave. So I was one of the first people, the first person that I'm aware of, that decided to um, do cheek augmentation. And we were doing it recently with radius and later bioalchemate and bioalchemate didn't work out. Now, I know some doctors had attempted it before with Sculptra. Yeah. And the problem we had with Sculptra was that it needed five courses of Sculptra. It needed about 70 injections a time. The risk of needle stick was incredibly high because um, we didn't use the magic needles then. They blocked every time, you know. And I mean, the third thing, and I hate to say it, that a lot of the patients we were seeing coming in from other countries, you couldn't trust the results. Yeah. Now, I had worked on cruise liners. I knew very well people coming from certain parts of the world, particularly South America, will give you fake documentation. They've come on board. They've got an L5S1 discopathy. Suddenly they're lifting a sort of chair on board. Oh, my back's out. You have to bring them into Jackson Memorial Hospital. You have to do the surgery. You have to cover them. And they bloody had it before they came on the ship at all. And that was rampant. So when I started seeing people from certain countries, I'm not embarrassed any country by mentioning which, I just queried the whole CD4 levels, the sort of viral load levels. And, you know, I even queried who they were. Give me a passport. This is somebody else's results. Who do I know? You know, all I know is you're HIV positive. You've got a big problem on your face. The original antiviral drugs are keeping you alive, but making you look like the walking dead. So, you know, and because I was getting no response, I said, okay, I've got to get away from Sculptra. You know, it works. But I mean, if it's an Irish patient, I know from St. James's Hospital, give me three results. But these people come from Spain, from Italy, from Haiti, from, you know, we were getting flooded. We had a situation where, you know, I had three HIV in my um, clinic uh, waiting room one morning, and none of them even were from Britain or Ireland, you know. So uh, originally I turned around and we had to work out how you inject the face. We knew transverse facial artery. We knew, you know, infraorbital artery. We knew the potential problems. But, I mean, Jake, we were putting 20 mils in people's faces, yeah. you know, not you know, one or two mils, and you had to have it right first time. The second thing is we were putting in compounds that certainly weren't reversible, you know. So when I see now people, you know, sort of getting excited about, you know, sort of working out <clears throat> how to inject a face of one or two mils, you know, they're on the bottom rung of the ladder compared to where we were. We started in rung 10 and made our way back down again, you know. Yeah. So, um we used bioalchemate because it lasted forever, but then it caused its own problems, as you're well aware. It caused massive sterile abscesses 10 years later, and a lot of it had to be removed. Well, and then we've had, I had a we had an Aquamid on the market here in mm. Sydney and I'm guessing Australia, yeah. maybe, what, maybe 10 years ago? Uh, probably closer to 50, yeah, 10 to uh, 15 years ago. They're, they're yeah. One of the polyacrylamides, you yeah. know, 2%. So then in 2003, I was invited to the um, United Nations Humanitarian Wars in New York. And Bono, um, who was a friend at the time, was giving out the awards to uh, Alex Catino for his work in Africa uh, regarding AIDS. And he was in Kampala and, you know, still a wonderful doctor. But I started chatting to him and, I, and I was, he didn't seem to have any of these problems at all. So I'm saying to myself, okay, his patients are dying, ours are living, 
either this is obviously a late stage of AIDS we've never seen before, or it's the drugs that are causing it. So I mooted years, two years before it became acceptable that it probably was the drugs that was causing it. And then suddenly new drugs came out and the whole transposition of fat from the face to the back of the neck and all, it just disappeared. But in the early stages, I was injecting, I suppose, um, patients off-label in the States and, and changing their lives, so to be fair. When did Sculpture come on the market and what was it originally sort of designed for? Um, Sculpture came on the market. I used Sculpture for the first time in the last century and originally... Um, back in 1999, I was using it, and Ionamed had the thing for the adding three mills. Um, we were all getting problems with um, crystallization as well as what was considered, I suppose, um, collagen formation, but mm. there was granules everywhere. So we figured out quite early, you don't put it into circular muscles, either bicularis oris or bicularis orbiculi, and you um, also, because it just kicks it out, you need to dilute it more. Yeah. So it's funny when Sculptor come out now and say, okay, you've got to use eight mils. We were using eight mils back in 2004. And then I had no problems. And then Danny Blager, who was working in Holland, and me had come together one of the face meetings. And he says, it's possible that your patients aren't mounting an immune response because you're treating all the HIV patients. And I said, well, if their figures are right, they must have an immune response. That's why they're living. So I think it's because I'm diluting it. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we, we diluted, and I never had a problem with it. And then Sanofi put me on the safety board. Gal German, I have taken it over, and hopefully it'll have a, a new life because Sculpture is a wonderful product, but it has to be done properly, mm. you know? We've had lots of pioneers on this podcast. One as recently as this morning, we were um, honoured to have Dr. Jean Carruthers on the podcast and she told us some wonderful stories about how her and her husband Alistair sort of pioneered the use of, of botulinum toxin in, in sort of cosmetic purposes. But, I'm, you know, you're sort of of that same era to a certain extent. It sounded by all accounts that it was a little bit of uh, the Wild West back in those days and I'm sure that techniques, well, I know that the techniques have improved and changed over the years and people have gotten more precise and they understand what they're doing and they're working with protocols. But how has your use of toxins changed over the years? You know, totally compensated by the fact that it may have been the Wild West, but it was almost like leaving New York to go to California and right. having to cross through the prairies with the Erica and the Sioux Indians and all the rest. It was also a very exciting time, you know, full of gold rushes and all the rest. And if you come out the other end of it, it was wonderful. I agree the protocols, the regulations weren't in place, but it was a much more wonderful world than we'd have now with all the protocols in place. And, um, you know, it has become boring again, you know, because... Everybody knows the same thing, and there's there's very few innovators left, you know. And um, it's funny. I know I I get credit, uh, I suppose, rightly to an extent, for reversing hyaluronidase. But one of the or reversing the fillers with hyaluronidase. But one of the reasons is, as you know, America didn't start using hyaluronidase until 2005, 2006, 2007. We were using sorry hyaluronic acid. We were using it ten years before them. And so, for instance, when Michael Jackson ran into trouble, they'd fly him across to us because nobody in the States knew how to take it back out of his face. And he was one of the first people ever to get hyaluronidase used on. Well, I was going to come on to that. So you, you said that quite casually, but I think our listeners would be interested to know. So 
Hurl on the Days, prior to to you using it, I don't think had ever been used in cosmetic medicine. Uh, not for that I'm aware of. And I even phoned up QMed, and I phoned Boris, and he was um, in um, Malmo at the time in a taxi. He said, Patrick, nobody has done that. Mm. But I mean, I had done it for other things. You know, like Dupuytron's contractor, I was using things like collagen is. The only thing is that it was hard to source. It was 450 quid, but Hyaluronides was was cheaper, you know, sort of. And um, I had used Hyaluronides in 2001 for an overfill of an eye that was mm. sent to me. You know, so um, the vascular problems, I suppose, started to happen <clears throat> around 2004, I think, was the first one I sort of had seen. And um, it, it wasn't, it was with radius, unfortunately, but it wasn't a reversible one. But... Um, I had lectured in Las Vegas and said, we've got to switch all fillers that are in potential vascular complex areas over to hyaluronides. But it fell on deaf ears because most of the doctors were using collagen yeah. and they weren't interested in hyaluronides, sorry, in, in um, hyaluronic acids. And even in the Siegel conference of 2006, 2007, you know, we had half American, half British and Irish and uh, some Syrians and Germans. And... Um, the American doctors are still advocating we're collagen's the way to go, and we're saying we don't even want to listen to you. What doses of highlays were you using? Like, how, how did you d- decide? Okay, well, th- this is where the problem started. Well, in 2011, when we started promoting it, um, the two things happened. On Imcast, there was a talk on it, and I searched it up, and I wasn't particularly happy with the world experts. Five of the people on stage had never even used it. Let's be fair. I said, you guys, you know, what are you, you're only quoting papers here, you know? So they were advocating uses of 75 and 150. Yeah. And then my American colleagues, including Arnie Klein, must say, I didn't cop it until later that our um, Woodheart, I suppose, amputes were 1,500. Yeah. Whereas theirs were 150. So they had, I suppose to use 10 ampules. So our mindset was different. So from, from the get-go, I was using 350, 750. And I knew after treating 20 or 30 cases that you didn't end up with all these disasters people were talking about that it dissolve all your own thing. So I really, really had an uphill battle, you know, sort of particularly I was lecturing in Las Vegas, saying, guys, just listen to me. Give 750. Okay, if you're taking overfill, you know, use 150, use, you know, 250, it doesn't matter. But if you've got vascular ischemia, you know, you got to hit it hard and heavy. The difficulty of Hylase is it's, it's not really owned by anyone. It's an off-label treatment. So we're still sort of finding our way to some extent. What do you think about ultrasound use of Hylase to, to use much more smaller doses and target it better? I have no time for it. I know it's promoted to me every day, including by some good friends of mine. And um, the first thing is ultrasound machines are not very specific as they say they are. I've used them. The second thing is everybody who uses hyaluronic acid doesn't have access to an ultrasound. And the third thing is, why do you want to use lower amounts? You know, when flooding the area, it works fine. Now, the one thing I will say is in Russia um, recently, Dalvi um, gave a lecture that showed that maybe injecting the perivascular area doesn't work 
as people say it does. Yeah. And so if you just get the vessel, then it works. So that's nearly indirect, I suppose, um, opposition to Claudio Lorenzo's work on the rabbit's ear that shows that it does go in. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's the people who are promoting the ultrasound that are trying to sort of advocate, well, actually, it doesn't go in, so as a consequence, you've got to get the artery. All I know is I've treated many hundreds of cases at this stage. I've never had one that didn't come back successfully. Hmm. I've never had one except for other doctors that ended up with scars. So it's difficult to know until you get, I suppose, proper science on this, what's right and what's wrong. Hmm. Um, it means, number one, everybody's to get an ultrasound. Number two, I'm not impressed by the ultrasound work that I've seen. There's one that sort of I, I, that you can get quite easily that people are promoting. It only costs about 8,000 euros. And, you know, the pictures change from one minute to an, one second to another, you know, sort of. And, um, okay, if it's a means of getting something intravascularly, particularly I have no problem with that. But if it's that everybody should start doing it this way when everybody has to buy an ultrasound, maybe it should be used as a second level, either by hospitals or experts that people refer to. But um, I don't think the overuse of hyaluronidase, Jake, that I've seen has ever done any harm, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I haven't seen hundreds, but I've seen many cases and, and sort of got involved, to, you know, just to sort of give advice and support and my own personal experience is you can end up using 10, 15 vials of 1,500 highlays done over several days. And I, I've never had to do that. Really? I know people are doing that. No, I've never had to use more than almost one vial. You know what I mean? And people are, keep doing this and flooding and flooding and flooding. I'm against that as well. You know, somebody showed me a case the other day where they used 1,500 six times. Yes. I've, I've never seen that in my life. Yeah. I mean, I probably have done more vascular than most people I know when I get referred from Turkey, from Lebanon, from Greece, you know, people flying in before COVID. And I've never had anybody that wasn't back up and running within a week and, you know, flew back home. Um, I, I, I don't know where that came from. And, uh, you know, if that's the reason for using ultrasound, then I think both things are wrong. I think if it's used properly and you know your anatomy and you know sort of um, where the embolism is most probably going to be, then as a, or the occlusion in this instance, um, yeah, I, I, it makes no sense to me that. Yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, it's frustrating for sure for the injector on the end of the phone or, you know, where you're trying to remote um, manage these cases because obviously in Australia, distance is a problem as well. So I think... Well, one thing that people aren't doing, which I think they should be doing, is hyperbaric oxygen chambers. I mean, you can almost see overnight the difference. You know, when you force oxygen in, into it, and I can't understand, you know, why, for instance, aspirin has been brought into a protocol and um, topical nitrate is not. Nobody's using hyperbaric oxygen. I mean, some of the most complex cases that were sent to me, you know, a week, two weeks after they happened, you can almost see overnight the difference when you, you know, sort of people into hyperbaric oxygen chambers. It costs nothing. It's only like 50 euros an hour. Every city has them. And, um, you know, you start them on about 75, 80% because some people could have flew in their ears and you could blow them at 100. But, I mean, anybody who's competent to have a baric oxygen chamber, I mean, you know, okay, a lot of the work that has been done 
is done on ischemia of um, bone tissue. Now, there's a big difference in trying to get oxygen into bone tissue and into sort of skin. You know, so a lot of the people are trying to say, oh, there's no real evidence of that. Well, I'll give you lots of evidence. I've at least treated maybe 150 cases under, you know, sort of hyperbaric oxygen. And I mean, the patient comes back the next day and you can actually see the difference. But, you know? it, but I mean, I take your point, but it's very anecdotal because it's not published or, or we don't have any histology or... I'm well aware of that. And but I mean, the thing is, when we started using hyaluronides as well, it wasn't published. And, you know, some of the things that are published out there, I would take with a big bit of salt because I know the people involved or initially the people who wrote some of the papers. It's a different thing if you're a mechanic working on Formula One engines every day you know, you see the other thing. Maybe it's my fault that I'm not publishing, but a lot of my patients are legal cases and, you know, sort of uh, being stymied from the point of view that some of our original ones, particularly the use of PRP, even stem cells in reversing some of the ischemic things. I mean, you know, I, I give them at lectures that people have seen. I've put them in certain magazines, but a lot of cases are um, legal cases. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I have sent a patient to a hyperbaric chamber myself, and I can't say whether it was that or or the highlays that was done, but you know they did recover quickly or quicker than expected. <laughs> so you know, I'm sure there is some merit, and it makes complete sense. But you know, mm. as with all these things, we want evidence and and papers and all the rest of it, which is you know, it's not always the best way of doing things. Sometimes you just know that it works. In the aesthetic world, there's a lot of very poor papers. Yeah, you know, you look at something like. PRP and hair, uh, later on would be doing a hair transplantation these PRP. They're pretty weak papers in terms of comparison. You look at the lack of evidence that you can have a venous occlusion as well as an arterial occlusion. All plastic surgeons say impossible, it has to be arterial and arterial, but there's no explanation for the cases that appear two or three days later. You know, the cases that there's no blanching at the time, you know, and it's almost like Everybody just stands up and shouts aloud and say, oh, that can't happen, that can't happen. You know, you got to do this, you got to do that. And, you know, it's a different thing. Those people that are shouting like that, sending you the cases to fix, you know. Uh, I've had three from Harley Street, guys that have Instagram accounts of over 100,000 <laughs> that are willing to sort of spout, you know, sort of their theories all day long. But, okay, then fix it if, you know. Yeah, no, and I have to say that that's one reason why, why I like your work, Patrick, because you're willing to to just do what you think rather than following the crowd. And, and sometimes yeah. it works. So no, I think yeah. you should be applauded for that. Can we just go back to Aquin? I've never used it. I've never seen it. I don't know what it looks like. So why did you choose that filler f for some of your patients many years ago? And, and, and tell okay, us the, the problems with it. The first thing is I didn't use Aquamid, right? But I used Bioathmid. The two of them came from the same stable in the Ukraine. Okay. The okay. The, the advantage of them was this. They formed a capsule around themselves, and consequently, they became what we called an endoprosthesis. Mm -hmm. So once you put them in, they were there for life. And they didn't really show the problems of sterile abscesses until much later. Right. Now, there's a product out there. I'm not going to mention the company. I see the same thing happening with it. It's a very popular product. I've seen the problem yesterday as well, where you just take pus out of faces. But, I mean, if you send in, there's no growth in it. So it's almost like um, there's sterile abscess. Bio didn't have these problems until 
10 years later. Mm-hmm. Originally in Holland, under Peter Veltheis, then in Canada, uh, Corey, and then uh, we had them ourselves in Dublin. So it was pulled off the market. <clears throat> but at the time, I suppose, Jake, it really changed people's lives. It was a brilliant volumizer. You could put it in through a one-entry shot. Uh, it immediately, I suppose, made people in one session look well. And um, at the time, we thought it was a miracle product because um, if you put in anything else, um, really, yes, we switched over to when we realized those problems. But um, if you put in anything else, it, it, they all wore off. And at the time... I suppose the hyaluronic acids only lasted about six months and no now they're up to two years and whatever. So you didn't want to be, I suppose, infected by these people also. And particularly myself that had this experience before, Jake, which yeah. happened to throughout the world after getting an accidental, I suppose, needle stick. And so it was a godsend compared to the Sculptra. And um, and it worked. It worked for quite a period of time. You know, I wrote a paper on, I can't remember, 25, 45 patients that we treated. And, um, and at the time, it was the interface when the new drugs were coming out. But from 99 until the new drugs came out around 2007, there was nothing else out there. Yeah. You know? And what did it look like? What is it thick? Is it? Coloured. Yeah, it's a pretty thick gel. And yeah. how do you inject yeah. it with a cannula or a needle when you were doing it? Believe it or not, we injected through an 18 gauge needle. Right. Wow. It's pretty that barbaric. So yeah. There weren't really cannulas at the time. And we did, we switched them over. The cannulas started to come in about uh, the mid noughties. Mm. Yeah. I think I started using cannulas for it about 2006. But certainly in. 1999, 2000, we had to um, go in through a point that a friend of mine now is trying to claim a name for the point, <laughs> anyway, and, and sort of aspirate. But we'd figured out if you divided the face into quarters uh, where there was a root in that was clear. Now, the problem was, obviously, you had to fill a, a space that was more medial. Yeah. So you were taking a chance there. I suppose, in many ways, I was lucky because those big 18 gauge or, you know, um, so I switched over if I had to do the um, the more medial aspect to just a cannula you'd put into a patient, mm-hmm. um, you know, the ones with the flexible plastic ends. Yeah. So we made the entry with that, but the cannulas we have now didn't exist then, yeah. you know. And the problem was that initially when you were going in with the bigger needle, it was lovely. You could put the compound in, but then if you pulled it out and switched it over to some of the plastic cannulas, they seemed to get stuck and bent all the time. It wasn't like they were going into, you know, anti-cubital fossa or going into a, a vessel. Yeah. They weren't good for really tracking through tissue because they were too flexible. But So, hmm. so your patients that you treated, say, 10 years earlier, did they all come back to you and say, hey, I've now got problems? or, or, or how Hard, did you... Hardly one of them. Believe it or not, the most amazing thing is that some of the patients who came back to me were different patients. Most of them were treated by dentists who right. didn't know there's something in their face and didn't put them in prophylactic antibiotics. So of my HIV patients, I had two back. Right, okay. And but, but 
at about 40. And did you have to drain those abscesses yourself or did they have to go to theatre? Yeah, no, I, I had to drain them myself, yeah. yeah. Okay. One had to go to hospital, unfortunately, uh, for a washout because he was sort of fairly extensive. But um, as nearly all the other ones, you could just nick and take it out and it, it just came out um, straw-coloured, pus-looking. Mm. Now, Patrick, you've got two very successful clinics. And correct me if my pronunciation is wrong. They're uh, Aylesbury Clinics. And um, as I said, they're very successful, but I'm assuming it's been a bit of a long road to, to sort of get build those businesses up to where they are now. So what was the what was the state of the market like um, when you first got started and how did you become, you know, so well known and, and popular? Because, you know, Ireland traditionally quite conservative. David, 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 David. Before the recession... We had about 30 clinics. Wow. We had clinics in Serbia. We had clinics in Turkey. We had clinics in Dubai. We had clinics in Saudi Arabia. We had franchised to nearly 20 clinics in India. Wow. Particularly with the hair transplant business. We had had clinics in London. You know, so when the Irish recession happened, we downscaled, you know. So I sort of, particularly when you get older, you sort of, I suppose, are less willing to, you know, sort of, um, I shouldn't say take risk because building up clinics is, is, is a bit of fun also. But um, you learn a couple of things, you know. Not everybody's the same as yourself. So suddenly if you have a lot of clinics and a lot of people, particularly in the hair transplant business, you have the people come back to you, but sorry, he's in Mumbai. I didn't do that. You know, that type <laughs> of thing. And... Um, so we downsized, and it's very containable at the moment, you know. Yeah. Now, we'll probably go back into London because it's so close, and we're going back into hair transplant again, you know. So, um, yeah, the re- Irish recession was, was very heavy. Most people I know lost millions because property dropped sometimes to 30% of its value. Wow. My apartment that I'm in now, when I went to work in Turak Road, I, in Melbourne, I lived in a property that a guy had given me, five-bedroom house. He had a boat outside and a big SUV. And my property in Dublin was worth more than his on Turak Road. I bought a role reversal. My property was 1.2 million just in this apartment. And it dropped after that recession at 350. Wow. It's probably back up to 559. I had five patients commit suicide. You know, so I mean... Most of my patients, because Aylesbury Road was the most expensive road in Ireland at the time, most of the properties there dropped from 20 million down to about, you know, four and five. Yeah. Now, Irish property was overpriced, but most people I know lost heck, a lot of money. So, um, yeah, so as soon as we really, 10 years later, coming out of the recession, now we've COVID. So we've had an interesting financial yeah, absolutely. spiral. How did you... Um, Train, you know, you obviously, I guess it was under the Aylesbury Clinic brand in all of those countries that you mentioned. So how did you train all of those doctors or, or how did you recruit? I'm just interested to know how you, you sort of kept that franchise model. And quality control. Okay, well, yeah. we kept the franchise model mostly for hair. Mm-hmm. Most of the doctors trained in Dublin and um, we went to India as well. And we did a, a franchise model through Richfield, who were the biggest sort of company there. So technically, we brought FUE hair transplant to the Indian continent in 2007, believe it or not. I think that was the first time ever. 
And we had done a famous Bollywood star, and the Times of India copped onto this, <laughs> and he shaved to go to get his hair done, and he went into a role in a movie as a criminal, and then I was seen in India, the Times of India copped on, they're going to do an expose, so I had to leave and fly to Dubai for <laughs> Christmas, <clears throat> in case we'd be seen together. So, um, well, speaking of yeah. famous people, um, you sort of alluded to it earlier in the com- in the conversation about how Michael Jackson came to see you because you were the only person that were using was using holidays to dissolve dermal fillers. So, can you just tell us a little a little bit about that story, how that all evolved and came to be? Mm. The back end of that story is more interesting than the front end, believe it or not. <laughs> well, I'm curious to know how, how you met him. How did that yeah. happen? Presumably, he was in Ireland touring, or I don't know. Um, not originally. No, they came for the reason that sort of we're, we're talking about. But there's no doubt about it that Michael um, came to live in Ireland as well. You know, he lived in Ireland for for nearly just short of a year. He went back home uh, when um, his old friend um, Mr. Brown died, and that was the Christmas of 2006, 2007. Hmm. But the thing is that Michael has about a certain amount of body dysmorphia. And even when um, the fillers looked fine to me, but he wanted a little bit out because he was meeting the Queen. And that was the opening of Casino Royale in London. So he um, was all panicky, I suppose, about meeting the Queen. And he says, Patrick, you know, we've got to just take this out a little bit. And the problem with Hally Ronda is in those days, and that was the early days, you could put in too much because it was still working for 48 hours. And suddenly there's too little in this, you know, and particularly with somebody who's on that verge, the cusp of BDD, you have to get it right first time, you know. And at the time also, I was using saline before I switched over back to your static saline. So it actually was a bit painful, uh, which, you know, as soon as we switched over, it was fine. But Michael, you know, originally was hurting with it. And I'm saying, Christ, if it didn't too much or not, you know. And then he went to London, but he chickened out. He didn't meet the Queen at all. Oh. He got shy and he stayed in, yeah. So he came back and I said, you know, what? And he says, now, I says, uh, I, I sort of chickened out, yeah. So did he remain a patient of yours? And I gather you became yeah, friends. Yeah, he was a patient of mine for many years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the funny thing is we never mentioned anybody, but the son, or the mayor, I can't remember, broke a big story when, before This Is It in London, mm-hmm. that he was coming to us um, not that long before he died, you know? So, yeah. And the skin condition that he had, the vitiligo, were you, the, were you yeah. treating him for that as well? I treated Michael for vitiligo, yes. Originally, um, Michael um, took down um, one of those dermatology boots we have, I can't remember what you call it, De Havilland or whatever, it's about 400 pages in it. And he was sitting reading it, and he came to the chapter on vitiligo with a black African child, and he turned around and he says to me, nobody knows the pain that that child is undergoing. And I'm saying to myself, well, vitiligo doesn't have any pain, what do you talking about like and I says yeah then I had to sort of do something else and I came back 
he turned around, he pulled up his leg and showed me his abdomen and he was purely black and white. And he says, I mean that pain, you know? Right. You know? So then we um, treated him. He treated his face above his neck, his hands. um, And at the time I switched over to Amelon because hydroquinone, uh, I didn't think was strong enough to, um, I suppose, keep the... um, I black, I suppose, pigment away, and I thought that amylan was better. And a funny incident happened to me when I was treating with amylan because amylan sort of used to go hard a little bit. And um, I was also afraid as well of Michael having the potential for base cell cancers. Well, not go down that road, but you know, just lack of melanin. Um, which is one, and he had lupus, of course, as well, which is one of the reasons he wore those masks and the umbrellas because I had always told him, Jesus, you've got to be careful. Now, obviously, you, you mentioned yourself, although most people assume that he had BDD. So how did you sort of approach things with him? And probably being the most famous person in the world, there's a lot of pressure on you as a cosmetic doctor to get things right first time, like you said. And did your experience with him... I never had that thing. I did a lot of celebrities in, and, you know, to an extent. Sure. I treated them <coughs> the same as anybody else. Um, I don't know. I, I never had that... Um, sense of looking up to somebody. Um, I suppose there's some sort of confidence she has as, as a doctor, you know, um, and I'm sure most surgeons are the same way, uh, except that the patients are probably under anesthetic by the time they're dealing with them. Yeah. But um, uh, you sort of see them as a patient rather than a person. Yes. I became more friendly with Michael and me just because he'd come back from Bahrain, he'd run into some problems there. He um, was, I suppose, finished the Santa Maria trials. He had left Neverland. So there was sort of more to him than, you know, sort of... um, But I think celebrities recognise it in you as well, that you're not impressed or you're not going to end up taking photographs of them or using it, you know. I mean, they just get comfortable in your presence, I suppose. And... um, I don't know. I mean, I was a doctor on cruise liners and the captain has a table and doctors have a table and you'd have celebrities coming in and out quite regularly, you know? Yeah. Mr. A-Team, Michael Eisner from, you know, Disneyland and, you know, yeah. Yeah, I I mean, as a treating cosmetic doctor and yet, you know, he's so um, famous. The papers, the, the papers are labelling himself Wacko Jack and all this stuff. So were you mindful of, you know, not fueling his BDD, just just doing sort of the simple things and, of course, treating his vitiligo, and, but, but no more than that? That's a very good question because above all doctors, I'd be the first person to turn around and with a BDD patient, take them to one side and make them aware of it. Yeah. So originally his BDD related to, I suppose, his nose, where he got part of his ear, you know, sort of, you know, put in in Germany to sort of bring up the bridge. I suppose when I met him originally, I didn't know there was BDD. I sort of put that criteria on him myself after treating him seven or eight times because Michael originally had a fear of needles the second thing is that he wanted knocked out just to get a bit of derma fillers, which mm. is obviously inappropriate. 
we give Michael Pokeball as well, you know, sort of on two occasions. Wow. And Michael, you know, immediately when he even seen it with Denise, says, oh, my milk. So you're thinking, he knows Pokeball. He's had it before. Yeah. And this is our thought process long before Michael was died, was murdered, was killed, whatever, you look at here. So, I mean, it's only over a period of time that you develop your own thing because you can't exactly phone up somebody and sort of say, do you think that he is such and such, you know? So I suppose I've had a lot of instance where I worked on my own. You know, I mean, when I did Flying Doctors in Australia, you're out in the middle of a crash in Tipperbur or something, you know And I mean? The thing is, you have to make the calls. This guy needs a subclavian line. This guy needs something. You're on your own. You're on a cruise liner, and, you know, there's 7,000 people on board, and you're the only doctor, yeah. you know? So as a consequence, you get used to, I suppose, um, working on your own, Jake, if you can imagine. Yes. From the point of view that, you know, and you get confidence in your own experience, and, you know, hopefully you don't end up doing any patient any harm. And... Um, I suppose when people come to you from other doctors and you become uh, effectively what some people would say the expert's expert, and that's not my thing, that's um, somebody did an interview and a thing recently, then you sort of look at things a different way, you know? Michael turned around to me and says, are you into my music? That's what he means. He says, um, would you prefer me or Prince? And I said, well, I could prefer Prince. You know, so <laughs> that's sort of thing, you know? <laughs> And then he get upset, you know. And I'd say, well, look at him, you know, I'm more into YouTube being Floyd myself. Was he aware that maybe his wants and the things that he was asking for, particularly with his nose and things, weren't necessarily, you know, good? Uh, did he have insight into into the fact that things weren't, weren't looking... Mike, you know, um, Michael was, at the risk of offending some of his fans, almost totally plastic. Yeah. His lips were, you know, outlined. He wore a wig. Um, his nose was, when I seen him, almost just a sterile strip. And I mean, but he was a human being behind it all. Yes. And um, and a wonderful human being as well. You know, so Michael, there was this incident that happened in Ireland one morning when some drug people um, put a bomb or a firebomb into a witness, expert witness's car and, you know, burnt the two kids in the back and they were in the hospital with serious injuries and Michael wanted to go in to see them and I thought it was perfect maybe that he didn't because he'd exposed the step that he was living in Ireland and, you know, after the paedophilia case, I didn't know how that had come across. Mm. And Michael started crying with me one day and he just took off his wig and he says, look, this is what happened to me, you know. And then, you know, sort of that broke down boundaries. So, I mean, you were seeing somebody in a totally different way, a lovely person that was very vulnerable, that had been, you know, attacked by society, somebody that was very fragile. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, when people allow you into their world like that, you, you, you see them in a totally different way. Grace Ruramba, who was, you know, sort of his care, there's with him to rest. Patrick, he's never done that to anybody in his life. I think you're the second person he's ever taken the week off to, you know. But I didn't even know about the accident he had with PepsiCo at the time. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, so the fact that he'd give the whole one and a half million to that hospital, you know, for Burns kids in New York, the Brock Center. You know, but then when he opened up with that, he told me that that bariatric chamber, the hyperbaric oxygen thing we're talking about, he donated that to the hospital and they just got him 
to get into it to take photographs. And then the British press particularly were terrible to him. And they turned around and said he had this at home and he was trying to make himself, you know, become younger. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't very nice. Mm. You know, but we, we did know each other on a level that Michael told me all about his father, his family and all the rest. And his version are slightly different than the version, you know. Yeah. And the troubles he was going under from, he thought people were after him and all the rest. But, um. I sort of would never really break his confidences, um, I suppose, medically, or never did. But there's certain things that I would know that maybe his own family don't know. You know? Yeah. Well, it sounds like he was um, the product of a very, whilst he was very famous and very successful in his career, it sounds like, well, from an outsider's perspective, his upbringing, the pressure he had on him at such a young age, the accident that he had all contributed to what he eventually became. He was a product of, of his environment and, and things that happened to him. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, um, moving away from, from Michael for a bit and just getting back to, I guess, the cosmetic scene in Ireland, um, what's the cosmetic scene like in the Republic of Ireland? And Britain for that yeah, matter. Yeah, or the UK, yes. You know, I'm very close to British doctors, I carry a British passport. I grew up in Northern Ireland. And I mean, most people are horrified what's happening in Britain regarding just everybody on a free-for-all. Yeah. Ireland, and I know it's beginning to happen in Australia, nurses can't inject Botox, for instance, in Ireland. And beauticians would be very frowned upon, you know, using fillers. I seen the most horrendous case yesterday. And most of the bad work in Ireland is done by East European beauticians, Polish, Lithuanian, they're the ones that are just coming over and thinking they can do what they want, probably no insurance, and then if there's a problem, they probably just leave the country, you mm. know? So, um, Ireland, yeah, Ireland would have higher standards than Britain, I think that's fair to say, you know, uh, across the board in aesthetic medicine. But having said that, that what has happened in Britain is spreading into Ireland. You know what I mean? So you have these guys from Northern Ireland coming down, training beauticians. There's a doctor in Belfast who I think, you know, was struck off. And then we have also nurses flying in from Scotland and from Liverpool. Liverpool seems to be a hotbed of sending people into Ireland that, you know, some of them have been arrested um, oh, because wow. they just go on to, you know, sort of Instagram um, and, you know, in front of a Ryanair jet with a stethoscope and they're a suspended nurse or something. Jeez. Oh, we're flying into Dublin. You know what I mean? It's bad and it's getting worse, you know? Mm. And I don't know where to stop it. I think the British government got a man up and just cut it out, you know? Now, there's no European legislation that affects Ireland that doesn't affect Britain, if you know what I mean. I think it's something that British doctors have fought against they're tired fighting against it for a long time. And because there's general acceptance, it's creeping into Ireland that as a general acceptance also. Now, I wrote a book recently on the evolution of aesthetic medicine. And I know the School of Athenia, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years before Christ even, cosmetic medicine in its form then, which was everything from putting fillers in that were wax to fat to blah, 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 and general surgery, were apart, but then they came together and then surgeons lost their 
ability to do things. Let's put it that way. You had appendixes taken out by barbers, you know yourself. You had <laughs> fractured limbs, you know, set by people with red poles. And it was only when George IV in the 1740s or something came and said, this got to stop. Let's separate the two. We have the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin. We have the Royal College of Surgeons in England and in, in London. And you are not allowed to do this unless you're regulated. Yeah. So it's been there a long, long time, you know. And um, even all the original peels, you know, they weren't done by doctors. You know, it was aestheticians, cosmetologists, if they wanted to look at their history, go back a long, long time. Now, who should eventually have territory of it? I think it's fair to say if you're injecting something, it should be medical, you know? Yeah. Um, now, the funny thing is, and you know this, that you don't have problems from Botox. As the nurses in Ireland are banned from doing Botox, and beauticians are doing dermal fillers. There's no logic to the way that it is all developed. You know, All the problems we see, I'm sure you see as well, Jake, are related to fillers. There's none related to Botox. Yeah, you know? and you know, the argument often trotted out, at least here in Australia, is everything's got to be about patient safety. And yet, just like you said, yes, you can get some terrible accidents with fillers, but with toxins... Apart from a droopy eyelid, um, which is temporary, which yeah. is temporary, you, you just don't see, you know, sort of horrendous sort of thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, where, where do you stand? And the hypocrisy involved in it. They turn around and say, "Okay, the reason that we don't let nurses do it is because Botox is a prescribable drug, and you've got fillers as medical devices, and that's the reason they can do it." That's totally bullshit. Yeah. Because all fillers have got lidocaine, which is a prescribable drug, so they shouldn't be using it anyway, you know? Where do you stand with, um, you know, how do I put this? A lot of our listeners are nurses, and here in Australia, maybe the culture is very different, but are you saying that you're you're not supporting nurses doing injectables or, or just under the right supervision? I've never had a problem with nurses, and um, I've been training nurses for 20 years. Mm. Um, British nurses, um, or Northern Ireland nurses, uh, and come down, and dentists, you know. So, I mean, nurses are colleagues, they're medical. So, um, I've absolutely no problem with nurses doing um, fillers or others. I do have a problem with nurses in England for one reason, and that is remote prescribing has been chem some sort of an entry level into aesthetic medicine. Mm -hmm. now, remote prescribing came in for very good reasons. And if you look at the background to it, if you don't have a doctor in the Orkney Isles, you don't have a doctor in Shetland Isles, it's only logical that a nurse can prescribe some of the antibiotics for, you know, a sore throat or laxatives for constipation. But for suddenly that to become an entry level, you know, I do problem with that, but certainly have no problem with nurses injecting. You yeah. Know? And... Recent evidence shows that, uh, that I've told this, it could be anecdotal, 42% of the nurses who left the NHS joined cosmetic medicine yeah. rather than sort of giving it up, uh, giving up nursing. Yeah. You know, so it's seen as some sort of, um, I suppose, you couldn't blame nurses because they get paid so badly, you know, and uh, certainly nurses, uh, I feel, should get paid an awful lot more. Uh, and particularly in the NHS, I mean, I think get paid half of the get paid in Ireland. I mean, it's absolutely terrible that nurses get paid in Britain. You know, some of them. My brother's wife is is a nurse in a health centre, and she's 
11 years qualified and she's only on mm. I think 20 something thousand a year in terms of pounds yeah. yeah yeah you can understand the attraction of yeah. doing something different I mean it's interesting because here in Australia re- remote prescribing is is certainly the norm because we've got well, I mean, you know, traditionally, you know, in the medical field and the hospital field, we needed uh, it because... Come on, I've worked in remote Australia. <laughs> yeah. For yeah. Long time. I agree, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the, and the argument, similar to what you just put forward, used to be uh, sort of trotted out that we shouldn't be doing it for aesthetic medicine. But I think most people now have sort of gone full circle and realised, well, actually... It's fine. It's safe. Again, similar to the the thing we just mentioned about Botox. No one's died from bad prescribing. They've died the from bad injecting. Is, and it started with doctors prescribing to nurses that were not prescriber nurses. And we had some doctors in England, and um, I must say foreign doctors as well, being proud of the fact, oh, I have about 2,000 you know, nurses on my books and prescribed, they're all taking commission. Yes. And unfortunately now some of the nurses weren't prescribing are doing the same to beauticians. Right, mm. yeah. And, you know, that is a problem. That's just inappropriate prescribing. It's not that it's not prescribing Absolutely. that's a problem. It's just mm. greedy doctors. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of the challenges um, that we face, and maybe we'll sort of end on, on this sort of a question, is um, training and having a standard qualification um nationally or even internationally that doesn't seem to exist in any country and that seems to be some of the challenges that we're faced because there isn't any agreed syllabus or standard that people need to adhere to to be i guess recognized as a competent and safe injector i mean with someone yeah for someone that's got david people are going on courses every day in london and they're not even treating patients so they just do theory thing they see somebody else doing it they come back and they start up and running yeah, I, I have a mentorship, and I've always had it in the clinic that anybody can come from anywhere over in the world. We don't change the man, charge them anything. They just take what they see, whatever patients are there on the day. And we get people from Bethlehem, from Israel, from London, from yeah. And we've always done that, you know. Yeah. Even some from Norway recently. Well, well, what do you think would be a plausible or sensible solution to this problem? As someone, you know, a pioneer like yourself who's seen seen it all, probably, how would you fix this problem? I think governments have to man up. And unfortunately, like what's happening in England at the moment where you've got these PPPs that sort of, you know, it should go to Royal Commission. It's too important not. Because the problem is that when you've got these public groups, the first thing is they're voted in by voters. And there's a hell of a lot more beauticians than there are doctors. The second thing is the lobby groups can pay them. And one of them recently is 42,000 it was given to them by beauticians in London that some of my colleagues were sort of involved in. So I, I think legislation has to be brought in. And I mean, um, obviously, it's a fight for territory. And obviously, you know, um, we surgeons had the same problem originally, but, you know, people who are doing minor surgery call themselves surgeons. People who are using lasers call themselves laser surgeons. People that are not doctors call them the clinics. So the whole dentists even call themselves doctors. You know, the whole thing needs to be just set out. A clinic is has to be owned by a doctor. But everybody, a nurse can set up an acne clinic. So it's almost like the English language has become so fluid that anybody can call themselves anything and nobody <laughs> cares anymore. You know? Yeah, well, we've had some um, changes here in Australia recently with um, protected titles 
in terms of what people can call themselves and using the word specialist. I've seen that, and in Scotland, to a large extent, also in Canada, mm. you know? Yeah, there's people on Instagram calling themselves a specialist this and a queen of that, and... <laughs> It's just ridiculous, um, uh, but it, but it is misleading, and and so it's, you know we no, no one wants a nanny state, no one wants to be told what to do per se. But it, I mean, the UK is the classic example. It's just, it's it's just well, bonkers. Well, we've had um, time to figure it out ourselves without government intervention, and we haven't been able to do it. So I think we've no. almost we've almost uh, <laughs> maybe it should be hit in the centre. You know, insurance companies stop insurance these people. Well, Pharmaceutical yeah. companies should stop prescribing these people. You know, I have beauticians coming into me with problems. And to be fair, I never pass comments either to the patient or to the beautician. You know, I see our place as an emergency room. You know, if somebody comes in and they've been raped, you can't turn around to the guy who raped them and say you shouldn't. You're not the moral police, you know. You're dealing with the problem. He got knifed in the meantime. That's your problem. So I have the same thing. But the beauticians bring in hyaluronides that they're getting online from Spain. So even though doctors will have to go out of their way to get something prescribed and, you know, I suppose covered and posted and blah, 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 these guys can just go online and buy all this stuff. Plus the number of fake stuff out there. I mean, I've seen a big problem with one of Allergan's uh, things yesterday and by a beautician, and I mean a really big problem. The patient ended up in hospital, and the hospital couldn't treat her, so sent her to another hospital that specializes in it. But Aragon don't give products to beauticians. So I seen the box, because I've seen a photograph of it, on the consent form, and I just wonder, it's just probably something made up in China to look, you know, exactly the same. So we've that big problem as well. Well, look, in the UK, and, and I wouldn't do it, but I could do it from Australia or anywhere in the world. You can just order it from any of these pharmacies. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. And, and you don't know if it's legit or, or made in a factory in Vietnam. You've got no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's crazy. Got one last question about um, the Irish industry, and then I think we'll call it a day, Patrick. There's a new... Sure chain clinic that that i gather is called therapy in ireland um oh. what are your thoughts on sort of you know um the commercialization of um aesthetic treatments okay the owner of therapy is a very personal good friend of mine his son now runs the clinics I was medical director of that chain when they set it up in 1997 98 mm -hmm. and um I sort of went my own route. Um, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to select out a clinic, and um, particularly, you know, there's a couple of them in Ireland. Sisu is the same, and, you know, they're almost like high street brands. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose a different business model where um, things are stacked high and, and sent out cheap. We have to, I suppose, wonder sometimes if things are going cheaper whether it's because people are bulk buying, I'm not referring to any clinic, but we know, because I introduced Botox to cruise liners, mm -hmm. believe it or not, 2001, 2002. The original Steiner's Darrell, um, who's actually Australian, we, um, he sold the, the, that company, we're not down that route. It's so easy if you're on holidays, if you're on a cruise line or whatever, just to dilute your product. Who's mm -hmm. going to complain? It lasts for three months instead of four and a half and you know you had a good time and you can easily sell it cheaper you know and um 
So, uh, you know, high street brands can easily manipulate the product. I mean, if they're going for high volume, they're not like established businesses where they need patients coming back all the time, you know. For instance, I did a 16-year-old hyperdrosis, Palmer hyperdrosis yesterday, you know, and um, he'd got it done before in two places that were cheaper than us, but it only lasts three months. You know, I mean, I use Botox straight for hyperdrosis. I don't dilute it, and it, I get six to ten months, you know, so... The, the papers, and I even looked them up, are all sort of saying to dilute to such and such extent, but they don't do a comparison to, you know, um, I know places in London that are doing hyperdrosis hands for 450 We charge 1200 yeah. but I use nearly 800 euros worth of product, you but, know? But I guess, so something gets wrong. Well, I mean, f- funny enough, yeah, mm. David owns multiple clinics and they come under a larger chain and many people years ago because they were so cheap <laughs> threw the same accusations at them because they just couldn't believe the prices but mm. i think it just shows the buying power of 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 multi you know multi-chain and sometimes multinational clinics mm. all right well i think we'll leave it there yeah sure well Patrick- thank you also because seven minutes to my next patient oh perfect and, uh, well before sorry be- Thank no, you, guys. Thank you. Well, before we let you run off, could you just tell our listeners how they um, get in contact with you? We've got an international audience, so there may be someone in Ireland or someone's traveling over there. Well, after COVID, they will. They want to get in contact with you or they want to reach out. What's your best way to get in contact and um, your social media as well? Okay, well, I suppose my email is ptracy at gmail. So it's P for police, T for tango, or for Romeo, E for echo, A for alpha, C for Charlie, Y for Yankee. You knew I grew up in Northern Ireland. <laughs> yes, that's the British Army looking at the number plates. You know, Alpha, <laughs> India, Lima, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, no, it's just that people spell Tracy a different way. So it's T or E A C Y. If you go on to the, I suppose, internet and hit um, aylesburyclinic.ie, um, I'm easy enough to find, and um, particularly if they put in the new book, Needle and the Damage Done. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, no, absolutely. We're happy it. to plug you. Yeah, so just tell, uh, tell us tell us quickly about the book and just yeah. Well, it's launching on uh, April thirtieth, which is a few days time, and it's going into all the UK bookstores first, Waterstones and um, Foils, and um, yep. Then it'll be in Ireland, and then we're launching it in New York next St. Patrick's Day because we're launching a new skin brand there. Okay. So um, uh, I know in America they're asking about it already because they did do an interview with California um, the day before yesterday. Yep. And um, so the needle in the dam is done, Patrick Tracy, and yeah, the pre-orders are looking good. And what's so, it all And what's it all about, just quickly? Like what, what, what is your book teaching or what, what message are you trying okay, to... Well, my first book is Behind the Mask, because yeah. Behind the Story of the Mask, the yes. story of my life, Michael Jackson's Behind yep. the Mask song. And the second one kicks in from 2012 to 2020. Most of the awards have got research and everyone you got. And it's the needle and Amazon, because people injecting fillers and doing damage. Yes. And we reverse that. And of course, that's a Neil Young song. There you so go. I'm continuing the song titles <laughs> in terms of the books, you know. So brilliant. Well, Patrick, it's been really great to catch up. Um, thank ever, you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Ever since I've been injecting, your name has been around in the ether somewhere. You've been, you know, one of the pioneers, and your work always comes up. I see so many lectures that you've done. So I really appreciate your time. And uh, when we can all no. eventually meet again, we'll see you at MCAS or yeah. AMWC or somewhere. We'll grab a whiskey. <laughs> 
Uncast tonight. There's 2.3 thousand doctors on it. After well, the chairman. I'll be going to bed, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, when you live in Australia, you feel like you live on Mars sometimes uh, with the time zone. So, yes, but enjoy and thanks again for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks. Okay. See you thanks, later. Thanks, thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.